Hello and welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is Charlie. Ken and I are pretty busy with tours at the moment, so just for this week, I'll give you a couple of episodes from my other podcast, Chasing Feathers, about some of my early adventures in South America, these ones from Manu in Peru. Join us again next week for a regular episode of Naturally Adventurous. Chapter 124. The Road, Peru. Search for the Black Tinamou. Arriving in Cusco, we went to the bus office and found our Cock of the Rock bus to Pilcopata left at 8.30am the following morning. The shopping took ages and we split it into two and took half the supplies to the office of the tourist agency that had offered to take our bag with a departing tour so we didn't have to lug the whole lot on our walk down the Manor Road. It was a really busy day, but finally we had all our camping equipment and food for four days packed and ready. We took a taxi down to the Gaito de las Rocas bus company office. The bus left just three times a week to the town of Pilcopata, down the Manor Road. We were going to pass here, but my plan was to take the bus to the ridge at the top of the road and walk down for four days. This is where the buffer zone of the Manu National Park started, and the trek I'd planned was supposed to be one of the best bird-watching destinations in South America. We got dropped off at a place called Akhanaco, the highest point and the start of the Manu Road, at about 2.30pm. It was cold and misty up there, and the characteristic elfin forest looked really eerie. A couple of young women got off the bus at the same spot, and they said they were volunteer park guards. They offered us shelter in their base a few minutes away, but I wanted to get moving. I didn't know how long it was going to take us to get to the place I wanted to camp. The mist and the hour meant that we didn't see many birds. One nice one that we did see, however, was a hooded mountain tanager. To bird up here, it would have been better to camp and do it in the morning. I regretted not getting off the bus lower down. Still, it was pretty and my girlfriend even seemed to enjoy herself, despite carrying a backpack that looked bigger than herself. The road winded down, and luckily there were some shortcuts which saved us a lot of time. From where we got off the bus at about 3,600 metres elevation, we were soon several hundred metres lower, and already the habitat was changing with bigger trees. It was getting late, and I started to worry about where to pitch our tent. Further up there had been lots of flat open areas, but further down it got steeper, and there were no suitable places off the road. We reached the edge of a small valley where there was a path leading down. I was going to go down and check it out, but some workmen came up and told me that it was private property. I asked them where a good place to camp would be, and they told me that the little village of Esperanza. I asked if it was far, and they said it wasn't. That's the thing with Peruvians, always misinforming you. I don't know if they do it on purpose, or if they just have no concept of time and space. He was miles away, and we arrived there well after dark, which is exactly what I didn't want to happen. My girlfriend thought that the guys looked a bit dodgy and was afraid that we were going to get attacked in the middle of the night. I thought it was unlikely, but still, it's always nice to camp somewhere where no one knows you're there. The place we found was a nice little grassy area, up a little slope from the road. It was a perfect place to camp, really, but we had to pitch the tent and cook dinner in the dark, which was a bit difficult. Still, we'd finished our first day on the Manu Road. Hopefully the birding will pick up from now on. I took myself off birding nearby at first light. It had been really cold at night and not terribly comfortable. The birding nearby was absolutely incredible. I saw about five lifers in as many minutes. Pretty amazing considering how long I've been birding in South America. 
There was a really beautiful golden-coloured tanager and some mountain caciques giving a whole host of weird calls. I went back to the tent about 8am, and we had a nice warm breakfast of porridge cooked on our new little gas stove. After that, I carried all the dirty pots and cutlery down to a little waterfall to wash up before we packed up and set off. As we made our way down from 2,800 metres, the vegetation was constantly changing. The trees got taller and lusher, and the whole place felt a lot more tropical. About 2,400 metres, the trees were loaded with moss and bromeliads, and a beautiful crystal-clear waterfall cascaded down the side of a cliff. It was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Even in the afternoon, there were loads of birds around, all completely different from a couple of hundred metres higher up. We had to stay here. I couldn't wait to bird this place in the morning. There was no obvious spots to camp, but I saw a little trail and followed it to where there was a little piece of flat land just big enough for our tent, and also mostly hidden from the road. Perfect. We pitched a tent and started cooking dinner. I went back to the main road to see if the tent was completely hidden, but the bright turquoise on the top was still visible, so I collected a few tropical ferns from nearby and laid them on top to camouflage it. One person had to sleep on a 45-degree angle, so it was even more uncomfortable than the night before. It was still very high here, but there were already a lot of insects around. I hoped that they wouldn't get too much worse further down. I had high expectations the next morning, but it got sunny and hot really quickly. I didn't see too much more than I had the previous afternoon. We had the same breakfast again, and I washed up in a beautiful little waterfall nearby. The day got hotter and hotter, and in the middle of the day, birding was non-existent. We seemed to walk forever, and I couldn't find any of the little settlements written in my book. Eventually, we found a friendly woman working away in her field. She seemed happy for a bit of conversation and gave us some info. About an hour further down was a place called Suisa. There were supposedly a few houses and a little shop selling cookies. Before we got there, I heard the strangest sound in the trees. It was unlike any bird that I've ever heard, and when I finally got a look at what was shaking the branches, I saw a woolly monkey, named because of its thick hair to keep it nice and warm in the mountains. When we got to Suisa, it was completely abandoned, but at least there was a nice piece of flat land behind one of the shacks, hidden from the road, where it looked like they used to grow vegetables. It had a nice view over the valley, and I was expecting a better night's sleep, but for some reason... Even though we were getting lower and lower, it didn't seem to be getting any warmer. There were loads of midges here too, and tempers were starting to fray. I was freezing for most of the night and couldn't sleep. I just lay there shivering until it started to get light. To make up for it, the birding was phenomenal, totally different again from just a little further up. We had a steaming pot of porridge when I got back, which was just what the doctor ordered. My girlfriend looked really tired as we packed up and set off on the last leg. Her face had come out in some cold sores, which wasn't a good sign. The birding was great all the way down, and it seemed such a waste to be spending so little time here. At midday, we stopped by the side of the road for lunch, mashed potatoes from a packet mix with cheese and vegetables. It was nice and warm, and there was a beautiful waterfall falling by the side of the road, so I took the opportunity to have a long-awaited shower. I stripped off and walked under it to get pounded by icy water. Talk about refreshing. I hoped no cars would pass and catch me in the nude. We continued down the hill, and a beautiful valley came into view. All the way down we could see the little town of San Pedro, and before that what must be Cock of the Rock Lodge, our final destination on the Manu Road. My girlfriend stopped to take a break, and all of a sudden started screaming. 
I thought she'd been attacked by a snake or something, but she pointed down the hill into a bit of shady forest. That bird, she said. She meant the Andean cock of the rock, which I'd shown her a picture of. She'd seen it before me, which is a bit frustrating. When we made it down into the valley below, it was really like paradise. There was another luxury lodge called the Manu Cloud Forest Lodge. Such a beautiful setting. Crystal clear mountain stream, big beautiful trees covered in tropical looking bromeliads. Luckily the cock of the rocks were common in this stretch, and by the time we had arrived we must have seen about twenty of them. Arriving at the lodge I tracked down the manager who said he'd been expecting me the day before. A little minibus arrived with a couple of American tourists and their guide. The plan was that we were going to camp there tonight and take the bus down with them to Atalaya tomorrow. That's where the boats leave from to get to Manor Wildlife Centre. We spoke to the driver, who we hoped had our bag of food, but he didn't, and hadn't even heard about us. Slightly worrying. Our last night's camp on the Manor Road was a bit more luxurious than up until now. We had a kind of wooden platform with a roof, and we finished off the last of our instant noodles. Having a roof over our heads and a wooden floor, I left my camera outside the tent at night and woke to find it full of condensation. That gave me an awful sick feeling in my stomach. I went off to search a trail for the black tinamou. Barry Walker told me that he'd seen it here once. I didn't find it and saw precious little else, just lots of youngest mannequins calling away and the garden full of beautiful hummingbirds like booted racket tail and the wire-crested thorn tail. We packed up our stuff and went down to the minibus to inform the driver that we were coming with them. The two tourists were a mother and daughter from the States. They were very nice and chatty. The guide called Fiorella seemed pretty knowledgeable on birds, but wasn't over-friendly. I asked about our bag, but no one knew anything about it, so we asked to stop at the large town of Pilcopata to buy supplies for the next few days. While the others had a stroll around town, we rushed around the market in a mad panic, trying to buy enough to keep us alive until our supplies arrived, which I was assured would be in a couple of days. We arrived in Atalaya, where the tourists went across the river to stay in a luxury lodge, while we checked into a cheap little hostel above a shop. Still, it felt like the Ritz, our first night in the bed for five days. I spent about an hour under a cold shower getting clean and washing clothes. We went down to eat a proper meal in the restaurant overlooking the river. It was full of drunks doing karaoke, but luckily we managed to avoid their curiosity. We saw our first macaws, red and green, flying over the river, squawking away, and we finally felt that we were in the jungle. We took a little walk along the river, but got totally lost, very sweaty, and there were no birds. As the sun started to set, we walked over to the pebbly beach and sat on a log, breathing in the cool mountain air. It put us in a very pensive mood, and we had a long chat about the future, which is never good. I still have no idea what I'm going to do when my money runs out. Chapter 125, Manu Wildlife Center, Peru. Search for the razor-billed curacao. I was pretty excited about getting on a boat for the six-hour ride to Manu Wildlife Center. The boat guys suddenly disappeared in the direction of the restaurant, one of them mumbling the word desayuno. I followed them and got some rice and fish, but having no Tupperware like them, I had it served in a plastic bag. The boat left and we went to pick up the others from Amazonia Lodge. They seemed to have enjoyed themselves there. We chatted a bit more on the boat with them, and they were very nice. 
The boat ride was great, and I saw a lot of lifers, including the rare, faciated tiger heron, which I'd been searching for since Central America. It was one of these species that is the only one that I haven't seen on a page of the bird book, and it's always nice to take one of those off. A nice feeling of completion. I later found out these are called bingo birds. The Americans seemed to take pity on us, and unloaded a whole bag full of food that they'd been piling up over their trip. Chocolates, juice, apples, all gratefully gobbled down by us. When we got to Manu Wildlife Centre, they were taken up to the lodge and we were taken over to the island in the middle of the river where we told that we could camp. First we had to chat with the manager, an Aussie called Julian. He hadn't heard anything about us either, which was a bit worrying. I felt bad about it, but he said not to worry. This is the usual thing around here. He looked a bit stressed and cheesed off about things in general. Over on the island, the dude in charge was called Alfredo, who was very friendly. He told us that there were no beds and little comfort of any kind. I told him we had everything we needed and wouldn't trouble them. We had a nice wooden platform with a roof there too. I pitched a tent and we had a bit of lunch before I went off to explore. There was apparently an area of bamboo nearby, which one of the workers took me to. There were trails over there, but it seemed a bit overgrown and I got lost and all scratched up with a nasty spiny vegetation on the way back. We had some dinner and there were lots of insects, so we went to hide in the tent. The previous day I met a biologist called Oscar who was studying macaws here. He said that there would be a boat heading up river to the lodge about 6.30am. We crossed over and got dropped off on the other side and he zoomed up river with his boatman. We chatted a bit with Julian who showed us a map of the extensive trail system. He'd spoken on the radio last night with someone at the office in Cusco but still didn't know anything about us. I told him to try and speak to a guy called Daniel who was the only person I really knew up there. We set off on the bamboo trail and then to the grid and saw a few birds. The thing about tropical lowland rainforests is that it's pretty difficult to see too much. Most identification is done by coals, which I wasn't too hot on yet. After the trails, we nipped back to the lodge and still had an hour left before the boat went back across. So I got Julian to show me where the trail to the canopy platform left from. I expected some kind of flimsy wooden frame about 10 metres up but had a real shock when I saw an iron spiral staircase winding its way up the side of one of the biggest trees I've ever seen. It was a bit hairy climbing up, but once at the top we climbed onto the wooden platform built into the crown of the tree. The name Canopy Platform was no lie. We were literally in the rainforest canopy, a total different aspect than from below. I figured it might be a good place to scan for raptors soaring over the canopy, but once up there, I realised that it was a perfect place to watch huge canopy flocks of colourful tanagers passing at eye level. It was too late for them now, and we climbed back down. I was looking forward to coming back here in the morning. We went down to the dock on the river to wait for Oscar to come back. The boat with the American ladies came back first, though. They'd been up river to look for macaws at the Claylick. The place we were camping was a little settlement where all the boatmen slept and the boats got refuelled. The guys were all locals from the lowlands and totally different from other Peruvians that I've met. They were tiny for a start and jabbered away in some odd-sounding native language. They were all pretty friendly, though. We made some instant noodles for lunch, with the two pale-winged trumpeter birds watching us carefully. Weird birds. They have glossy black bodies with a rainbow sheen on their wings, a big fluffy white butt, and a kind of fluffy round head that makes them look like they've got a buzz cut. Totally fearless when tamed, and they stood around our feet pecking at our shoes waiting for scraps. Alfredo told us that they were both females and they had no male to keep them company. We were almost out of supplies from the food that we bought in Pilcopata. 
We hoped that the box that we left in Cusco would arrive today, but on recent form it didn't seem very likely. We took the boat across in the morning with Alfredo and headed straight up to the platform. It was absolutely amazing with hordes of birds flying in all directions. I only wish I had a nice big scope to see the stuff further away. There were also some cool little tamarins 40 metres up in the canopy, obviously not as scared of heights as I am. After an hour or so up there, the activity slowed down a bit and we climbed back down to explore a few more of the trails. Back on the other side, we had some lunch and I went off on my own for a few hours on the bamboo trail on the island. I knew it pretty well now and found out it was a big loop. Walking around, I heard a large bird flush from a nearby tree and into the next. I got it in my binoculars and saw it was a huge blackbird with a big red bill and rufous vent. It was a razor-billed curacao, one of the birds I'd been hoping to see. When I got back to camp in the evening, my girlfriend started telling me that a weird animal had come into the camp. It turned out she was talking about a lowland tapir. I couldn't believe she'd seen another cool animal before me. I started to panic a bit and dreaded that I wasn't going to see it at all. It turned out its name was Vanessa and was practically a pet that came into camp to feed on papaya that one of the ladies gave it. It was still there when I got around the back of the building with my camera to get a few shots. We were both pretty wiped out that evening, but our spirits were lifted a little when we found out our supplies had arrived. We'd be able to stay for another few days. We celebrated with marshmallows grilled on my little camp stove. We walked a few different trails the next day, including one right out to the tapir clay lick. These wild cousins of Vanessa's only came out at night though, so we didn't see any. There were a few nice birds at the clay lick like cream-coloured woodpecker and red-capped parakeet. The number of new birds I was seeing was definitely dropping off. The information they have seems to change by the day, so all we can do is bird and wait. It was time to be getting back to Cusco. I asked Alfredo again and also Julian about boats, but both still said that there probably wouldn't be any for another week. This was a big problem, as my conference would be finished by then. We didn't have enough food to last us anyway. There was going to be a boat going to the airport tomorrow with some other tourists. From there, it was another 20 minutes to the small town of Bocomanu, and from there there may or may not be boats heading upstream. We had no choice, so we'd have to take a chance. Chapter 126. Manu to Cusco, Peru. My girlfriend was delighted to be leaving. She hates insects and her whole body was covered with little itchy red bites. Vanessa, the tapir, was back again and we fed her a few scraps. I noticed a few scratches on her flanks and a guy in the camp told me that she'd been attacked by a jaguar. Considering how tame and docile she seems, she did well to escape such a ferocious beast. The two trumpeters seemed to have taken a liking to us and were always hanging around our tent. Maybe they just realised we're a soft touch. Getting to know the people here, the forest and all the wildlife, I started to feel a little sad, but had a feeling that I'd be back here one day. We packed our stuff up first thing in the morning and took a boat across to the other side to pick up the four American tourists. By the dock was the usual little drab water tyrant perched by the water's edge. One old lady who seemed very nice kept engaging us in conversation. I assume she and her elderly husband were the parents of the middle-aged man and his daughter, but it turned out they'd just been thrown together, and the bloke confided in me later on that he didn't like the old woman with all her questions. The airport was a bit of a joke, just a long field with a grass-roofed hut at one end. Considering what everyone had said, 
The chances of getting back by boat seemed pretty slim, and I decided to bite the bullet and fork out for two seats on a small plane, assuming there was space. I found out later that a rare bird, the rufous-fronted ant thrush, was found in the jungle near the airstrip. I could have gone looking for it. As the plane came in, the little airport guys started flustering and weighing our bags. We were really going back to Cusco. We charged onto the runway towards the plane, but the two pilots gave us a confused look and said there was no space after all. Plan B. Some of the lodge up the river agreed to give us a ride to Bocamanu, from where we would try and get a boat up the river. At least there were shops there and we wouldn't starve. When we arrived, we found out a boat had just left and they didn't know when the next one would be. We waited for a few hours on the off chance that a boat left, but of course we ended up camping. There was a clean public toilet with showers too. We hoped that we'd be able to leave the next day. Boats sometimes left first thing in the morning, so I was there at first light to check of any life at the dock. It was dead. Nobody to be seen. I went back and packed up my stuff just in case, and we spent the morning sat on a bench in front of the shop overlooking the river. We were kept company by someone's pet yellow-crammed Amazon parrot, which came down and perched on our bags. By the early afternoon, it was obvious that no boat was leaving. It took about five hours to get to Atalaya, and it got dark at 6pm. I pitched my tent unhappily, this time on the football pitch in the middle of the tiny village. We had no food left, and were forced to buy something from a restaurant, which were all overpriced. My girlfriend was really losing it now. She wanted to leave big time. But if there was no boat, there was no boat. All we could do was wait. The conference in Cusco was starting that day. I'd be able to make some great contacts there, but not if I'm stuck in this place. The next morning I packed up again and we went to sit in the same place. I had a better feeling about today though, and my instincts would prove right when a boat appeared. A young Peruvian couple working as volunteer park guards had arrived yesterday and said they expected a boat today. The word on the grapevine from an old woman in the grubby little shop sounded good too. The boat first stopped nearby, then pulled into the bank further down. I charged down there and nervously asked the driver if he would take us. The woman in the shop had said it would cost us 30 soles, but he said 45. I only had the nerve to bargain him down to 40 for fear of being left behind. He was holding all the cards. We had to wait around for ages, but it finally left and I breathed a sigh of relief. The chap behind me was called Nicolas and he worked as a guide. We had a good chat about guiding and birds. The river was fairly low, which apparently makes it slower to get upstream. It was getting late and it appeared that we weren't going to make it. I was pissed off. Today was the second day of the conference I was missing. All because the idiot driver didn't want to leave early enough. About an hour or so short of Atalaya, we pulled into the side of the river at a small settlement called Dos Cincuenta. There were a few houses, a little restaurant and a national park post where there were a few beds that they would let us sleep. We had little money to get back and scrounged a pot of hot water with which we made some lukewarm powdered soup. The driver and his chum ate like kings with the money they'd overcharged us. I'd set my alarm for 5am. Nicholas said that we'd be leaving first thing. As soon as we woke, he shouted we'd be leaving 30 minutes. We got ready and walked down to the edge of the river, where we were greeted with a fading sound of a boat engine zooming up river. Our boat wasn't there, but I knew they couldn't have left us behind. Or could they? After a few more minutes waiting and chatting with a few locals, it became clear that that's exactly what they'd done. It turned out they got wasted last night, with our money, and left without us first thing. There are a few instants and a few people I've met in my life, that when I think about them they just make me angry. The boatman had really incurred my wrath. 
Woe betide him if he was still around by the time I got to Atalaya. We were left to get there on land and went to wait by the road. I chatted with a couple of locals who I told about our misfortune and they agreed the guy was a raton. My girlfriend was in a truly awful mood and I thought it was better to avoid her, considering how angry I was. I went off birding down the road to calm down. After about an hour in which time I'd calmed down considerably and seen some nice birds, including a crane hawk, my girlfriend started shouting. There was a truck there outside the shop, which was going to Cusco. We had to wait a couple of hours, but they were going all the way. Just before they left, though, the driver said that we'd be better in a bus. Then they drove off in a cloud of dust, leaving me scratching my head. I think the guys said that they were going to load some wood, and if we didn't get the bus, then they'd give us a ride. We waited for a bus for an hour, but it didn't come. We were very worried we were going to get left behind again. It was a real series of mess-ups. We walked the two kilometres to where the truck was loading wood just in case the bus didn't come. But as soon as we got there, it did. We hoped this would go to Pilcopata, a large town a few hours away, but it only went halfway there to a town called Salvacion. This was the first town of any size and it had real shops and restaurants that charged proper prices. It was a real relief and our first sign of civilization. We waited there after lunch, but no cars were leaving, so we started to walk. If we got to Atalaya, some transport might be leaving from there. I'd missed half the conference now and I was desperate to get back. We crossed a river, getting our feet wet, and we were tired and fed up. After about an hour, the first truck popped onto the horizon and stopped for us. We got to Pilco, where they said that they were staying the night, but after a couple of hours they changed their minds and said that they'd be driving all the way back to Cusco tonight. Imagine a dirty truck filled with big wooden planks, going along a bumpy, freezing mountain road. We lay on top of the load and tried to make ourselves as comfortable as possible, a hard task. In the middle of the night, my girlfriend needed to take a pee, but there was no question of a toilet stop. She wasn't happy. She forgave me, though, as we were just so delighted to be going back. 